The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is from Master Women's Gateless Gate, Cohen Collection. <clears throat> One day Master Yunmen said to the assembly, Look, this world is vast and wide. Why do you put on your priest's robe at the sound of the bell? The commentary. Now in studying Zen and disciplining oneself in Zen, one must strictly avoid following sounds and clinging to forms. Even though one may be enlightened by hearing a sound or have one's mind clarified by seeing a form, this is just a matter of course. It's nothing to talk about either. If a person is able to master sounds and control forms and thus can clearly see the reality of everything and is wonderfully free in everything they do. Though it may be so, you tell me, does the sound come to your ear or does your ear go to the sound? Even if you're able to transcend both sound and silence, how do you speak of it? If you listen with your ear, you cannot truly get it. When you hear with your eye, then you can really see. The poem. If you understand it, all things are one. If you do not, they're separate and different. If you do not understand it, all things are one. If you do, they're separate and different. So this weekend we've, uh, well, since Wednesday evening, been having a retreat run by an organization, Dharma Gates. A little free advertising here for you. (laughs) (laughs) Which um, I've been involved with for a while, Board of Advisors. And it's an organization that um, directs um, primarily towards younger folks, college-age people, and a little beyond to try and introduce them to Dharma. And for those who are interested and feel an affinity to help them find a way to a place where they can practice, perhaps find a teacher. And so I've been hosting a retreat here that Gokhan and Sean have been leading. And so I wanted to um, speak to you, those of you who are here a bit, and hopefully it'll speak to all of us. I was remembering as I was waiting to come out, um, you know, to be on a spiritual path is to acknowledge that um, we need help. That everything we see around us and everything that we're being given or told is somehow not enough. That there is something missing, something that is not yet understood or seen or available to us. And that, in a sense, puts us in a position of vulnerability. And that's part of what we take on as a practitioner. It's like if we don't want to just live a formulaic life, but actually be examining, questioning, discerning, demanding, to not just spin in samsara then we take on, part of our responsibility is take on the challenge of that, right? That there isn't something that is cookie-cutter, 
set out for you. I remember my sitting down, actually my grandfather sitting me down. <laughs> Years ago, I had transferred from different schools and I was, as he saw it, I was wandering and he was concerned. Son, I'm concerned about you. You seem to be wandering around like maybe you're a little lost. And I couldn't really give him much assurance because I didn't know how this was going to work out. And I wasn't entirely clear on what was going on. But I was pretty clear on what I did not want, which was just what I saw around me. It was easier to know what I didn't want, but it was very difficult to know what I did want. And so to be in a time of learning and growth and exploring and discovery to try and find out what is this, what's going on here? That was what I wanted to know. Not just what's going on here, but does anybody actually know what's going on here? I wasn't, it wasn't, that wasn't so clear to me that anybody knew. And what is my place in it? What is this life? This one life that I have. I don't know what happens before or after this. And who is this person in the middle of it all? Because you are making decisions. You know, as we grow up, it's sort of like we're waiting for to life to really happen. When we reach certain points in our life, we can drive, we can vote, we can leave home, we can go to school, we can live on our own. And at some point, it's like life will start. Well, it is well underway. And that every choice we make has consequences, moves us in a certain direction. Oftentimes, they seem slight. Sometimes we make significant choices and may not know that we're doing that. And other times we do know. We do know. I remember years ago when Dadaroshi called a few of us over to the abbacy and told us that he had been diagnosed with a pretty advanced stage of cancer and then begin to lay out his, his thoughts, his vision of how he thought we should go after he passed. And as we were leaving, myself, Hojin, Ryushin, Jimon was there. I stopped on the path and I said, you know, there are moments where our lives change and we don't know it. This is a moment where we know they've changed. And so what do we rely upon? Like, what is the basis of our choices, our actions, our intentions, which are so important, the Buddha realized, because they create karma, which have consequences, which build on themselves. That's the nature of karma. Which really brings us back to the question of, or brings us to the question, maybe not back to the question, but brings us to the question of what is actually important? What is actually important? One of the Buddha's nuns, Dira, received words from the Buddha, which upon her own enlightenment she offered back to herself in one of the Theragatha poems. And she says, the name you are called means self-reliance, Dira. So know these for yourself. Cessation, the still inner projections, happiness. Attain liberation the unsurpassed safety from all that holds you back. 
what is important. There's a practice in Buddhism that helps us to get in touch with that. It says, first, recognize that life is precious. Because as a human being, we have certain capacities. We have a mind. We have intellect. We have language. We have the human form. We can think about things and imagine things that we've never experienced. We can create things in our mind and bring them to life. We can help each other. We can serve. And so life is precious. And then sitting deeply in that, remember that it's also impermanent. It's fleeting. That's why we remind ourselves every day, every day, let me respectfully remind you and that ultimately we die. And that's true of every living thing. And that every action brings consequence. Karma is an immutable truth in the human realm. And those consequences can go in all different directions based on our actions, which can come from all different directions. That life will bring us challenges and struggles and adversity that we cannot predict. And that everything in the world, including ourselves, is in a natural state of peace. An unconditioned natural state of peace. Not because of what it does, but by its very nature. When we don't see that, when that's not true for us, we project our lack of that peace out onto the world. And so what do we do? Well, to help us, Yunmen calls out, look, to get our attention, to call us in, to bring our minds into a state of alertness. And the teachings are that. They use language. We call them teachings. They use actions. We call them practices to get our attention, to gather it in, to direct it, because it's the most powerful force we have and to startle us awake, to bring us into attention, to realize. <laughs> you know, I've told the story when I, I got into trouble riding a motorcycle without a license and trying to evade a policeman who was trying to. <laughs> it's a longer story, but <clears throat> I ended up in court in front of a judge. And I was a punk. I was a kid, you know. And I thought I was in control of the world. And, and uh, I was arrogant and... Um, and so I was kind of, you know, sassing the judge, and my father whacked me on the back of the head, which he wasn't like that. He didn't do that normally. And that got my attention. He startled me awake. And I realized, oh, there's something going on here I'm not aware of. I'm standing on the precipice, and I didn't notice. Sometimes it takes that. So the koan is a, is a, a challenge and a wonderful a aspect of practice of skillful means in the Zen tradition. And it's practiced in different ways in different schools of Zen. And in our tradition, it's used as a direct pointing, as, a, as an aspect of our meditation for those who take up koan training. <clears throat> and it's based in, in, in what is called the three pillars of the Zen teaching, which is first, we need to have faith. We need to have a reasonable amount of trust or some trust, right? As much as you have. That's where you start. 
Because that gives us, that allows us to turn towards and take up the practice, to, 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 take, to activate the teachings through what we do. And then the other side of that, that faith, because that can become blind, is doubt, inquiry, examining, not just accepting things because they're presented by the teachings or the Buddha, but to actually examine very deeply. And then with those two that work together in a beautiful kind of dynamic, we have to persevere. We have to actually keep going. Right? We're a culture that sort of thrives on experiences, like peak experiences, right? That make us feel like we're alive, maybe. And so we think, if I have just a, an enlightenment experience, then everything's going to be great, right? All the bad stuff's going to go away. I'm all good. And now I'm enlightened. And if I just have that experience, and the koans sometimes seem to reinforce that. But it's not like that. It's a path, it's training, it's something that we do every day. We come back to it. We cultivate it, we strengthen it. We bring it to life over and over and over. And that's a wonderful way to live a life. And so we persevere, because sometimes it's not going to be easy. Sometimes it's not easy. Sometimes you don't want to. And I spoke about that yesterday. So we have to dig in and find, come back to that question, what matters? What's important? Not just in terms of passing desires, but what path do I want to be cultivating in my life to make something in my life, of my life? And we know that that's only going to come about through some sustained effort. And so the koan, because we are taught to use our minds to think, to analyze, to compare, to judge, figure things out, to know. And so we all come into practice with a deep faith in that aspect of our mind. And I speak about that a lot. It's very powerful. We use it in Buddhism, our conceptual mind. But it's also got limits, and that's what we have to appreciate. <coughs> it can only take us so far. And so we're cultivating, particularly in our zazen, our non-conceptual mind. Master Dogen said, think, non, think not thinking. What is that non-thinking? That is beyond analysis and comparisons and knowing. And so Yunmen says, look, the world is vast and wide, more than we know. Why, at this very moment, as the sound of the densho is ringing, are you putting on your rope? So he's talking to a, a room full of monastics. And just as those of you who are here for the weekend saw, every morning, right, we chant the verse, the, 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 the bell is struck, and we chant the verse of the Kesa, and the monastics put on their okesa, the Jikai students put on their raksu, chanting the vast is the robe of liberation. That's exactly what was happening in that moment. And you men calls out and says, why do you do this? And the bell sounds. Why do you get out of bed when you wake up? Why do you make a meal when you're hungry? Why do you wash the dishes when you're done? Why do you comfort a friend when they're in pain? Now we can offer all offer cogent and easy explanations that will make sense. But do those answers satisfy your hunger? When the degree is earned, when the job is obtained, when you bought the house, when you've got the relationship, enjoying the vacations, now what? 
when every day you wake up and enter your day, and today is somewhat like yesterday, and you do that again and again, we do that. The monastic life is a, a very disciplined life. Yunmen is calling out, why? The world is vast and wide. Why do you do that? At the sound of the bell. <laughs> I was remembering my mother telling me that there was a point, I have three siblings, and there was a point where two or three of us might have been in diapers, cloth diapers, old days. And she said she was, and she had been an actress, she traveled around the world, she almost married a guy that we discovered had been put on the cover of Life magazine. We found the cover of Life magazine in her trunk. From, and we said, who is this guy? And she said, oh, I almost married him. <laughs> I almost went to Africa and married him. <laughs> so, she's, so she's had that kind of thing. She's hanging up these diapers. And she said, I looked down the clothesline, and it seemed like as far as my eye could see, there was nothing but diapers. <laughs> That's what my life has become. <laughs> Why? And... If we're fortunate, in the midst of all that, there are moments, standing at the base of a mountain, at the edge of the ocean, deep in the woods, under the vast sky, where we feel something, experience something, vast and wide. And we ourselves are small and significant. We come and go in a moment. We're just one of many. But we're in the midst of something. And sometimes we taste it. We get a taste of it. A wind blows and comes in through our senses and tells us something. What is this that we are in the midst of? We chant in the Sutra of Great Compassion, we recognize that our activities are wondrous in their simplicity. Wondrous in their simplicity. Evelyn Underhill, in her book on mysticism, wrote, The question is not, whence come those conditions which provoke in the self the experiences we call sorrow or anxiety or pain, but rather why those conditions hurt the self. Think about that. She's not asking why we experience difficult things in our life but rather why they hurt the self. Something happens in a moment. You experience some sort of pain, but the moment has passed. But the hurt of the self has not. Why does full consciousness always include the mysterious capacity for misery, she asks, as well as for happiness? A capacity which seems at first sight to invalidate any conception of the absolute as beautiful, and good. Why does evolution, as we ascend the ladder of life, foster instead of diminish our capacity for useless mental anguish, for long, dull torment and bitter grief? You know, one of the things that's so difficult as we practice and we see things more clearly, we open our hearts and we recognize how the mind is the three worlds. We see how we have the capacity to create sorrow and anxiety and pain 
and hurt the self and how that lingers and lingers and becomes a way of life and becomes who we are and that it's not necessary that it's the result of what we are doing with our minds and that as we understand that more and more and, and free ourselves of that in a world the more world becomes more painful because we see that so with such ubiquity and we realize it doesn't need to be so. She says the mystic path, in the mystic path, the love of truth, of reality, leaves the merely intellectual sphere and takes on the assured aspect of a personal passion. Dada she spoke of it as an imperative. You know, it's like as long as spiritual practice is, you know, optional, then it's optional. That's okay. You know, everybody makes their own choices about things. But when it shifts to a different level, where it's something that must be attended to, the Buddha spoke of doing what must be done. That's different. It's not coming from the outside. And mere intellectual approaches we will, we maybe have already exhausted. And we know there has to be another way. And so she says, where the philosopher guesses and argues, the mystic lives and looks. Lives and looks. And speaks, consequently, a disconcerting language of first-hand experience, not the neat dialectic of various schools of thought. I spoke about that yesterday. The koans are... are good examples of that. Dogen's teaching, many teachings are examples of that. Teachings that are disconcerting. For the one who wants to know, they get under your skin, they trouble you, they bother you, they confuse your mind. They won't let you go. They're startling you awake. And that's part of what we have to take on, is to be able to be patient and forbear such moments that are uncomfortable and are not immediately resolved. And that when we shift and go back to whatever balms we've used, those become decreasingly effective. That's a good thing. She said, the real truth of the mystic is love that is attainable, that is alive. We have to believe, we have to have faith that this, that not only is there another way, but that you can do it. You, you, can, you can walk that path. In the commentary to this koan, Master Shibayama says, Master Yuman Zen is really cutting and sharp. He pointedly asks, why do you put on your robe at the sound of the bell? It has to be the real truth, not an idea, but the fact that it's actually lived by us. This one word, why, is the core of the koan, and it flows out of Master Yuman's ardent compassion. He asks out of his wholehearted wish that we may be liberated from our mind, from our attachments and false views. This why that he's asking, he's not asking for an explanation, a reason, something to discuss with family and friends. He wants us, that why, to take us into a much deeper level 
which is why we sit, to develop, to discover, and strengthen that natural capacity we have that begins in mindfulness, wobbly, wobbly mindfulness, wavering, easily distracted, but that begins to find its ground, find its stability and its expansiveness. And its expansiveness takes us into what the Buddha called right concentration or samadhi, which is just a deeper state of your natural mind. And in that, everything that comes into you, everything that we bring our attention to, doesn't become more powerful because it's just in its natural state. But we experience it in a much more vivid and powerful way. And we begin to see, oh, that's happening all the time. That the world is, in a sense, communicating with us of its own truth. But we have to learn how to, to listen. That's why in the commentary, Yun Men or Wu Men is, is invoking Dongshan, who said, if you want to truly hear, want to truly see, you can't listen with your ears, you have to listen with your eyes and see with your ears. What kind of craziness is that? Right? Obviously, he's not talking literally. He's saying we have to, to let go and expand in a sense, explode our notion of who we are. The eyes see, the ears hear. That's all there is to it. And so he says, though it may be so, you tell me, does the sound come to your ear? Does your ear go to the sound? This actually appears in one of the sutras, Surangama Sutra, where the Buddha asks that question as the bell is sounding. Does the sound of the bell come to your ear? Does your ear go to the sound? And that may sound like a philosophical question, but it's not. It's asking, in the moment of perception, what is that? Is it something that's happening outside of you? Is it something that is happening inside of you? Is that even the right question? What is the inside and outside of you? What defines it? The moment that there is inside and outside, there's a boundary. Something has to define it. Let's call it our skin. And so the boundaries have been established. All that is you is inside. All that is not you is outside. Conflicts are just coming over the hill. When this why is taken in deeply in meditation, it fills the body and mind. It takes the student to a moment of, that cannot be grasped, that is not about explanations. That's why the Buddha way Buddhist practice is transformative, because it's not just changing ideas, an old one for a new one. And it's not changing ourselves. It's revealing, illuminating what's always there. When our perception is unclear, then that means it's not clear. We're not seeing clearly. We're not hearing clearly. We are hearing and seeing. But what is it that we're hearing and seeing? If things had their own objective nature, right, and our senses were just experiencing things objectively, we would all see and agree upon what we saw, and it would be the same thing. There would be no argument, right? Because we would have little to do with it other than just letting our objective senses experience something that had its own independent objective reality. 
Well, everybody knows that's not the way it works, right? And since everything we do and think and say depends on our perception, what the Buddha realized is that is the matter at hand. Everything comes down to that. Because if that's not clear, if my mind is not clear, if my mind is biased, and specifically biased towards the self, and biased away from everything that is not this, because the boundary has been established, how could there not be conflict? How could there not be high and low, superior and inferior, those who are included, those who are excluded? And so we face this mind, this body, these thoughts, these emotions, sensations, and see into. Not what we want. All right? So Zazen is not like you like a, a takeout order. Right? I'd like two of these and one of these. No, I don't want any of those. We sit down open and receptive and trusting. And then the world appears. Your world. The self appears a self that has been hurt, that is hurting. And how we meet it makes all the difference. Because we are meeting that every day. Every person, everywhere in the world, in every moment, is meeting it, and so much of the time, not so well. We deflect, we defer, we blame. And, you know, there's plenty of blame that, <laughs> that can be applied when people act badly. That needs to be recognized. That needs to be attended to. But what the Buddha realized is if, that as long as our own mind is caught, is not liberated, is biased, the whole world will continue to be. And that will hobble us at every step and constrain our natural compassion, hold us back and keep bringing us back into those aspects of ourself that are binding. And so we face that and we practice that basic teaching. Don't reject it and don't grasp at it. Just that. That is perhaps the most important and powerful guide for practice. Just that. Because when we practice that, we're practicing the middle way. We're experiencing, we're in the middle way. And so we face the fires that arise within us without creating more fires. You don't have to feed it, you don't have to extinguish it. I mean, in a way, it's wonderful, right? It relieves you of all of that labor of trying to manage and control and manipulate, which is endless and tireless, exhaust, no, tiring and exhausting, right? And, we're not, and we don't succeed, right? Even when we think we succeed, it shows up again. I mean, the history of humanity is a history of cycles returning, returning, returning in individual lives, in communities, in countries. And the Buddha said, that is what we call samsara, turning, spinning, But all the while, as Hong Zhu that I read from yesterday, 
He said, all the while your natural glory, your Buddha nature, is not marred by shadows, even the shadows of your own making. That each of us is able to be serene, is able to know, is able to walk securely. That means just in this. So that you can dispense your natural energy, key, your spiritual energy, your liveness. And as you said very simply, share yourself. Right? When that boundary, that sense of boundary, is realized as boundlessness, then there's no longer concern that if I that I will run out. There's not enough. So that we can respond to the world. Teachings say that bodhisattvas practice in the middle of the fire. This means they enter into the suffering of the world. It also means that we stay steady within the fire, within our own painful emotions. And so Zazen is teaching us that, right? As we encounter all of these things that, that cause us to wobble or want to turn away or shut down, that we learn to just stay. And again, you're relieved of the need to fix or repair that mentality, that view, that, 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 that model, that paradigm is what we're trying to free ourselves of. It says you don't have to act out or repress. Just stay on that spot. Stay on that spot. And explore the present moment's ungraspable qualities and fluid energies. And let that experience link you, bring you, into an intimate contact with the pain and courage of others. Which is saying that when we're practicing an experience and are bringing compassion and wisdom to our own body and mind, we're discovering, we're cultivating compassion for the bodies and minds of others. The more we trust ourselves, the more easily, more naturally we can trust others and understand what trust means. It's not naive, it's smart, it's intelligent, it's worldly. When we face our own anger, pride, jealousy, and face those without, towards ourselves, without anger, without criticism, without harsh judgment, right? It makes sense that that then is training us. How do we do that with others? If we can't do that towards ourselves, And if we find that we are able to do that with others more readily, but can't do it with ourselves, then you yourself are the sentient being that you need to put before your eyes. Take care of that one. If you understand it, all things are one. If you don't, they're different and separate. So when we look at things intellectually, that's the way it seems. Having an intellectual understanding of Buddhism, all things are one. Right? I get it. I understand it. And for those who don't understand it, for them everything is separate and distinct. But ours is not just an intellectually based, intellectually satisfied practice. And so, woman goes on, if you do not understand it now, all things are one. Go beyond understanding. Let go of those ideas. If you want to really understand 
the, the reality of all things, any of the things that Buddhism presents as our liberation. Let go of the idea of it. Experience it directly. If you do not understand it, all things are one. If you do, they are separate and different. And so I hope this, this weekend or this long weekend has been helpful to those of you who are here with us. It was really nice to have you all here. Practice together, live together. And I hope whatever you, wherever your path takes you, that it is worthy of your wholehearted attention and that you give yourself to it wholeheartedly and bring that trust into your life. Because while we are, we are insignificant in a way, or one person in the world of billions, one life, one fleeting life, within all things being impermanent, you're not without significance. You're not without influence. Right? You can't abdicate your influence. <laughs> right? That's not an option. To be in the world is to be in the world and bring influence, your influence into the world. Because you're creating karma. Because you're thinking, you're having desires, you're establishing intentions, you're creating a life. What a wonderful opportunity that is. Hmm? So I'll end with a passage from the faith mind. One thing, all things, move among them and intermingle without distinction. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. So important. To live in this realization is to have no anxiety about non-perfection. That's just another fantasy, another illusion, another heartbreak, another failure. To be without anxiety about non-perfection. To live in this faith is the road to non-duality, to unity, to peace. Because the non-dual peace is one with your trusting mind. And it's a lot to ask to cultivate a deep trust in a world that seems arguably insane. <laughs> this is the time we have. This is the time we've been born into, been given. This is our opportunity. So, what is important? Please live that. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.